Well, good evening to you all. Um, I'll ask you to bear with me. My throat's feeling kind of scratchy, so if I start wheezing and coughing, I hope you'll give me grace. If you will, turn with me to Numbers chapter 30. We will be looking at the whole of the chapter this evening. If you remember, we, as we've been going through Numbers, there was the original generation that the Lord chose to go into the Promised Land. They rebelled, so the Lord uh, sent them into the wilderness to die off, and now we are following the second generation. But in the past couple of chapters, we've been in a brief interlude of that narrative, a brief section of the law, of some laws about sacrifices. And now we're not talking about sacrifices so much as we are talking about vows. Um, vows of men and women are the subject of Numbers chapter 30. It's not a very long chapter, so we will read the entirety of it. Starting in verse 1, it says, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. If a woman vows a vow to the Lord, and binds herself by a pledge, while within her father's house in her youth, and her father hears of her vow, and of her pledge by which she has bound herself, and says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father opposes her on the day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. If she marries a husband while under her vows or any thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself, and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day that he hears, then her vow shall stand, and her pledges by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if, on the day that her husband comes to hear of it, he opposes her, then he makes void her vow that was on her, and the thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she bound herself, and the Lord will forgive her. But any vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, anything by which she has bound herself, shall stand against her. And if she vowed in her husband's house, or bound herself by a pledge with all with an oath, and her husband heard of it, and said nothing to her, and did not oppose her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband makes them null and void on the day that he hears of them, or that he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows, or concerning her pledge of, or, of herself, shall not stand. Her husband has made them void, and the Lord will forgive her. Any vow and any binding oath to afflict herself, her husband may establish, or her, or her husband may make void. But if her husband says nothing to her from day to day, then he establishes all her vows or all her pledges that are upon her. He has established them because he said nothing to her on the day that he heard of them. But if he makes them null and void after he has heard of them, then he shall bear her iniquity. These are the statutes that the Lord commanded Moses about a man and his wife and about a father and his daughter while she is in her youth within her father's house. Well, as we look out on the world today, it is said many times, and it is said quite rightly, uh, that in America there is a war on men. You can hear this from many conservative commentators. Uh, many pe preachers and pastors say the same thing. And you can see it in the culture, in the entertainment that we see. Uh, there is a lot of deriding of men, of fathers portrayed as lousy, as incompetent, many things like that, whereas... Uh, the women are all exceptional doctors, astronauts, solving cancer, 
and the like. One effect of this has been a horrible misunderstanding of patriarchy and what that is, and consequently attacks being launched at Scripture for being uh, a book of tyranny, a book of patriarchal oppression, and things like that, and of putting women down. For those of you that don't know the official definition of patriarchy, it is father rule. That's what it comes from. Uh, so it is a society or a unit that is ruled by the father. The father is the head of the house. And that has effects and implications for the rest of the society. You can see many false descriptions of patriarchy in many forms of entertainment. One of the most recent ones that was abominable was the Barbie movie. I hope none of you watched that movie because it was horrible. Uh, it had the grossest caricature of, of patriarchy that you have ever seen. The men, once they discovered patriarchy, they went around with no responsibilities. They could do whatever they wanted. They could just sit around, drink alcohol, watch TV, and do nothing else, and have their women, uh, not even their wives, but just their girlfriends, women they didn't even really have much connection to, uh, be, better, be nothing better than their slaves, just serving them all of their pleasures. Uh, patriarchy is seen as oppressive, misogynistic, hateful, evil, only serving to hurt and hinder women, uh, hinder women. Of course, I hope you already know this, but that is not what true patriarchy is. That is not uh, what God designed a patriarchal society to be, where a father rules the family, where he leads family, where he has authority over his family. That is not how God intended it, and that is not what we see in Scripture. In our chapter today, we get a brief glimpse into the society that the Jews were a part of. It was patriarchal. There were specific abilities that fathers or husbands had that the women did not have, but it did not serve to oppress the women, but instead it was a form of protecting them uh, in many ways. Patriarchy can be abused. Um, as men, we went through the book, It's Good to Be a Man by Michael Foster, and he touched on the many ways that patriarchies can be abused. They can be used to oppress, they can be used to hurt uh, men and women, both of them. Anything can be abused by sinful men, but um, that does not mean that it is wrong in and of itself. So in our chapter today, one of the things that we'll see is that there are specific rights afforded to men uh, that are not afforded to women, specific abilities that fathers and husbands have that are given for the good of the society. And I hope you'll see that as we go through this. So first we start off in verse 1 and 2 with the general principle, the general summary of this command. And what it says is that this is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. The people of Israel are here commanded to keep their word if they vow to the Lord. Uh, there are many instances of vows that we'll look at later in Scripture. But it was a commitment to do something for the Lord or to not do something for the Lord. And the people are commanded that if they do these vows, they are not to break them. If they give their word, they are not to go against it. One of the reasons for this is that the people of Israel are to imitate God in their actions. 
God never lies. God never says he will do something and then does not do it. That is not who God is. He is uh, ever truthful. He is the truth. So God's people is supposed, uh, is supposed to imitate that in their actions. They're, if they give their word in a vow, they are not to break it. The call is the same for us today. Um, we are called to be holy as God is holy. One of the aspects of that, we are called to image him in our truth, um, in the fact that we keep our word, in the fact that we are not liars and deceivers. I think many of us can think, all of us can think, of times that we have lied, uh, of times that we have not lived, in, uh, lived up to our word. Um, that is not how we are supposed to be. We are supposed to give the world an, a picture of who God is. God is faithful. He can be relied upon. He can be trusted. In that, as the church, we should be the same. We should not be giving our word that we will do something and not doing it. Uh, that does not reflect well on the Lord that we love. We should not be rash or ingenuine in our speech. As Leviticus 5 points out, you'll see there there's a provision that if somebody makes a rash vow or does many other things, they're to offer a sacrifice for it, to atone for it, because it is a sin for them to make a vow and not to follow through with it. So God understood that the people of Israel would not image him perfectly, so he provided them a way to be clean. Of course, we know that for us, we do not offer sacrifices to atone for our sin. That is what Christ has done on our behalf. He offered himself up as a sacrifice so we can have our sin, our dishonesty, our deceit atoned for. Uh, and that payment is for us if, uh, in Christ, if we trust him who cannot lie. Uh, that is a wonderful truth of God. We cannot say about anyone on earth that they cannot lie. But we can say that of God. If we read something in his word where he says that he will do something, he will do it. Um, that is wondrous. It is wondrous to consider how God is not like us in many ways. But nevertheless, we are called to be like him. Uh, we may not ever attain that perfection, that perfect honesty, but we are called to strive for it. Second thing to notice about this general statement and about the rest of the chapter is that this is a case law. So it is not a law that is saying you should make vows. It is not a law commanding people to make vows, commanding, commanding men or women to make vows. But it says what should happen if somebody makes a vow. If somebody makes a vow, they are not to break it. They are to do according to all that comes out of their mouths. That is important because when we get to Jesus' teaching, he says instead we should not swear, we should not make oaths, but we should simply speak and let our yes be yes and our no be no. He's not contradicting the word. Uh, he is getting to the intent of the word. These commands were commanded so that the people of God would be honest, so they would be truthful and true to their word. And Jesus just expands on that and gets deeper to it. So let's look more at what are the vows that are described here. Uh, it would be easy to liken this to marital vows. That's probably the vows, the type of vow that we're most familiar with nowadays. But in Old Testament times, those were not the specific vows that were in mind. 
First thing we can see in verses 2 and verse 3 is that this is for vows made by men and women. That's the general principle is that uh, men and women are supposed to keep their vows. Specifically in view, the types of vows that they would be making are vow offerings. So they would vow, Lord, I will give you this offering uh, as a gift to you. Sometimes people would make vows like that. Sometimes people would make vows of dedication where they wouldn't offer up a sacrifice, but they would give maybe uh, an animal for service in the temple or uh, even a son, a family member to the Lord's service. There were also vows of affliction, which was not them literally hurting themselves, but vows of fasting, of denying themselves things so that they could focus on the Lord and on his providence, on his sustaining power. And then there are also any kinds of rash vows that people made. Those are also mentioned in Scripture. Any thoughtless utterance. Um, The people of Israel were not these perfect people that always spoke these very uh, perfect words. A lot of them said rash things. Um, And some instances of that. Well, one instance is Jephthah. Uh, Some of you may know the story of Jephthah. In the book of Judges, chapter 11, He makes a vow. He was one of the judges of Israel, and he was warring against the Ammonites. So he makes a vow, and it's of the structure, Lord, if you will do this for me, I will do this for you. That's the structure that a lot of the vows took. In this account, he says, Lord, if you will give me victory over the Ammonites, then when I return home, whatever comes out of my house, um, or possibly whoever comes out of my house, I will sacrifice to you. Tragically, when he gets victory over the Ammonites, he returns home, and the first thing that comes out of his house is his daughter. So um, his daughter submits uh, foolishly to Jephthah's foolish vow, which he should have sought atonement for, and which he should have offered a sacrifice for forgiveness for, um, and she mourns for the fact that she has not uh, been married, that she has no one to continue uh, her line, She mourns for her virginity, and then uh, Jephthah follows through with his vow and sacrifices her in a very tragic account that shows you the evil of foolish vows. Um, That was Jephthah, a very negative example of vows. In 1 Samuel, though, uh, we have this man by the name of Elkanah, and he has a wife um, that is barren, has not had any children, She is distraught by this. She desperately wants a child. So she vows to the Lord in that same structure, Lord, if you will give me this, I will give this to you. And she says, Lord, if you will give me a son, I will give him to you for your service. Well, God answers her petition and gives her Samuel for a son, the great prophet Samuel that would anoint King David, that would anoint King Saul. And uh, she follows through with her vow. She does this as a beautiful thing unto the Lord. And it's remarkable that she counts it better to have had a son and to give him to service uh, to the Lord than to never have had one at all. That is uh, pretty remarkable. So those are some examples of vows in Scripture. Again, the structure was often, Lord, if you will do this for me, I will respond in gratitude in this way or something like that. And the general command here is that if someone makes a vow, They are to keep it, and if they fail to keep it, then they are guilty of sin. 
So the next part of the chapter, uh, the rest of it, which is the majority of it, addresses perhaps a problem case that could arise. So let me uh, give you an example or a hypothetical situation that would happen. Maybe there's a young woman who's living in her father's house and she hears reading from the word of God one day, she's moved. She says, I want to dedicate myself to the Lord's service. So she makes a vow uh, just to herself that she will uh, dedicate herself to the Lord's service. She says it perhaps rashly just in the spirit of uh, how she's moved. She cannot serve full-time in the temple because uh, maybe she's not a Levite or she's just not a man, so she can't do this. So what would be required is that her family would have to pay a, the valuation of her. There were specific values monetarily that were assigned to different age and different gendered people. <clears throat> uh, the men had a certain value assigned to them, the women had a certain value assigned to them, and the family would then pay that fee. Well, perhaps the father does not have this money. Uh, the father does not believe that it is wise to do this. The father does not believe that the daughter is sincere in this. So when he hears of this vow, he opposes her, and he says, no, you should not do this. Well, then you have two things opposed. If the daughter is to abide by this command, she will follow through with her vow and be disobeying her father. If she obeys her father, then she's breaking her word. So what is, what is to happen in that scenario? That is what uh, is described in the rest of the chapter, and it's not only with daughters and fathers, but also with wives and husbands. So what does it say? We follow a young woman somewhat over the course of her life, you could say, in the rest of the chapter. In verses 3 through 5, it talks about a young woman who vows while she's in her father's house, so her father is the authority over her, and she makes a vow. This is probably very young. Jewish women got married a lot earlier than we do now. Sometimes women get married at 30 or 40. That was not the case in Israel. Generally, they would get married very young, probably in the teens. So if a woman is still in her father's house, she's likely very young. Verses 6 through 8 talk about a young woman who is under a vow and gets married while she's under the vow. So her authority changes from being under her father to being under her husband. And then verse 9 touches on what is a woman to do or what is expected of her if her husband is dead, if she's a widow, or if she is divorced. And then verses 10 through 15 talk about a woman who is married, this is not necessarily a young woman or a recently married woman, uh, but one who has been married for a little while who makes a vow. At each of these stages, the text clarifies how these uh, vows are to be dealt with depending on how the figure in authority, namely the father or the husband, views the vow or the oath. Vows were normally uh, commitments to do things specifically, to give something to the Lord. Oaths were typically um, commitments to not do things, to fast, to uh, not go up to some place, or something like that. So again, if she's in her father's house, her father is the person in authority over her. So she submits to her father. And what it says is that he has the authority to annul her vows. If when he hears of the vow, it is displeasing to him uh, for whatever reason. He can annul the vow, and it says that the Lord will forgive her. If she's married, her husband is her head. He, has, uh, he is the authority over her. 
So he has the ability to annul her vows. So that if she breaks a vow, if she does not fulfill it, she is doing so not because of her disobedience, but because she is submitting to her husband. It's almost that the woman's vow, when she makes it, is in a limbo state until the man hears of it. And he either establishes it, which does not mean that he creates a vow for the woman. It means that he confirms it, he lets it stand, uh, or he annuls it. So why is this provision made? We already had that hypothetical example earlier. What are some other reasons that this provision is made? Why would a father annul his daughter's vow? Why would he make it void? Why would a husband do it for his wife? There are a number of situations that would uh, call for this. First, there are occasions where fulfilling the vow is not possible. Maybe the wife or the daughter does speak out of ignorance, out of foolishness, and she makes a vow that she can never fulfill. If that's the case, then she has already condemned herself, and the father or the husband would do her a great service by saying, no, that vow is void. You do not have to worry about atoning for it with the sacrifice. The Lord has forgiven you uh, because you are submitting to me. Also, maybe a vow offering, maybe, someone, maybe a woman vows to give an offering to the Lord, a certain animal, and the family does not have such an animal. Um, in that case, it could be the same. Next, there are cases where the husband or father opposes the vow for maybe another reason. So perhaps the wife uh, vows to afflict herself, to fast, and for whatever reason, maybe there's a great company that's coming in to their house, and for her to be fasting during that time would be disrespectful to them, maybe something like that. Maybe uh, the woman has vowed her son to the Lord, like Hannah, uh, the wife of Elkanah did, and the husband believes that not to be wise. Maybe he's in poor health, and the son, if he is not with uh, his mother, will uh, not serve her. Maybe she will be destitute and abandoned by her family. There are many uh, reasonable and godly reasons for a husband or father to annul these vows. And notice what God says he will do should this happen. In verse 5, in the latter part of the verse, and the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. In verse 8, and the Lord will forgive her uh, if her uh, vow is voided. Verse 12, her husband has made them void and the Lord will forgive her. God has mercy on the woman for her failure to keep her word because she was submitting to her head. He does not hold her accountable for her sin because she has been uh, covered in a way by her husband, by her father. God does not allow for there to be a case where following his commands would contradict each other. That's one of the things we see here. God is not a human politician who makes stupid laws, who makes laws that do not make sense and that lead people into chaos. He knows uh, the heart of man. He knows what will come up. He knows that these cases will arise, so he makes provisions for them should they come up. Uh, now, this is only the case for women under authority. That's one thing that in a patriarchal society, often gets dismissed. It seems like the men have all this power and the women, no matter what women they are, are subject to the men. That's not the case here. You see, the divorced woman or the woman who is a widow does not, uh, is not under the authority of a man. 
No man has the authority to annul her vows because she is not submitting to one of them. Uh, she has been freed. That's one thing that often gets glossed over. Again, like the Barbie movie, you have these men and women that are in no way related or in covenant with one another, and for some reason the men have the right to order them around. That's not the case. That is not how God designed it to be. We also see the last thing is that in the last case, there's a slight difference um, with the end. It talks about a case where the woman makes a vow, specifically the wife, and the husband, upon hearing of it, says nothing to her. So in that, he establishes the vow. He lets it stand. But for one reason or another, uh, day to day goes on, and at some point later, he says, well, this vow is not favorable to me anymore. So he annuls it. In that case, there is guilt to be atoned for, and it is the man's guilt. He should have been a man of conviction, a man of wisdom, who knew as soon as he heard this vow that it would not be wise, that it would not be favorable, so he would have annulled it then. Since he did not, that vow stood, and now he is forcing the woman to break her vow. And for that, the woman will not have to offer a sacrifice, but it says that he will bear her iniquity. He will have to offer a sacrifice for his own sin that he uh, committed. So is this provision patriarchal? Uh, yes, I think it's impossible to deny that. The men, the fathers, and the husbands have special authority given to them over their wives, over their daughters. But is it oppressive? Is this a way of putting down women, of harming them? No, it's not. Um, again, God uses the men in these situations to preserve the women from guilt, should they have made a rash vow. That is not the case for men. Uh, if they made a vow, they had to either atone for it with a sacrifice for not fulfilling it, or they had to keep it. There was no one who could cover them and say, no, it's okay. Um, you do not have to keep that vow because I have opposed you. That's not the case. The men were held to a high standard, you can see. You can also see that it doesn't say that the vows of women are inherently inferior or worthless. The women here are making vows, um, and it is only until the, until the husband or the father objects to them that they are annulled. It is not as though the word of, woman, of a woman is totally worthless. That's not the case. Uh, the women were not forbidden from devotion to the Lord or given this second-rate status in the uh, people of Israel, but there were different roles that the men and the women had. There were different privileges that were provided for both of them. So as we consider this chapter, we see a lot of about vows, about keeping your word. Christian, if your word is worthless, if you cannot be depended upon, if you have the reputation of committing to many things and following through with none of them, that is something worthy of repentance. Uh, that is something that demands repentance. That is not a morally neutral state. God has commanded that we be truthful, that we imitate him. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We are to be truthful in the same way. God fulfills all of his words. Um, he can be counted on for everything that he has said that he will do. He can be counted on to answer our prayers. 
Um, when he says that he will return again, and he will wipe away the wicked from the earth, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, he will bring us into the new kingdom, he can be trusted on that. Um, he has made that commitment to us so graciously. Uh, we can trust that. It would not be right for us to go and live wickedly deceptive lives. Our words should be worth something. Uh, we shouldn't speak hastily and rashly, but as James says, we should be quick to listen, uh, slow to speak. We should think before we speak. God is not only concerned with our actions. It is not as though you can have a Christian who is living rightly, doing all these things, giving to the poor, uh, loving the church, things like that, but his word is totally worthless. That is not pleasing to God. God also cares about what we say. Uh, indeed, James also says that the tongue is a fire uh, that can reap destruction. That is the power that we have with our mouths, with our voices, if we are unwise, if we are foolish. So as Christians, we should watch our mouths. We should be truthful and dependable. If you are not uh, undependable, if your word is sure, if you have a reputation of people being able to count on you, and though everything would seem to say that they will not follow through, they do follow through in the end, do so more and more. Uh, that is gracious in the sight of God to fulfill your word, uh, to have indeed your yes be yes and your no be no. Do so more and more. Use your words not to shame others, not to um, disappoint others, but to bless them, to encourage them. Lastly, be encouraged that God cannot and has not lied to you. Um, there are many things in our lives that can make us view Scripture, view the words of God, as though they are not coming true. Uh, Peter addresses that when he says that uh, the people are looking around and saying the world is transpiring just as it was. How will it ever end? When will God keep his promise? He's not going to keep his promise. That is not true. God is faithful, though everyone else were a liar. He will keep his word. Uh, that is a check that you can take to the bank, and it will be, not be rejected. It will not be denied. Uh, he will follow through with that. He will deliver on those promises. So be encouraged in that. Delight in the Lord's faithfulness. Delight in his love towards those who have trusted in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your faithfulness. Uh, truly, you are a rock that we can place our hope in. You are not shaky. You are not uh, a sea of sand that shifts with uh, the wind, with the shifting of people's thoughts. But you are sure, you are true. So Lord, help us to found our hope on you. Help us to imitate you in that, that we would be reliable, we would be dependable, we would be truthful, uh, and so point a deceptive and lying world to the God who cannot lie, who is truth, uh, who is love. Please help us to be faithful, help us to image your faithfulness, and be an effective witness in the world around us. It's in Jesus' name.